Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends to also visit IslamPodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, Sira, and much more. Today we have Brother Burhan who's going to be talking about a very important topic, a new world order. Um, as we know, the Prophet he came and changed the world order at his time. At his time, the Prophet was dealing with a society that was um, uh, advanced in languages, but backwards in every other sense. Um, they were very, as we know, they were burying their daughters alive. Uh, the powerful were suppressing the weak, the rich uh, were oppressing the poor. Uh, we saw fraudulent dealing in the public matters in terms of uh, business, trade, commerce. Um, and it lays parallels with today. We see very similar things happening today. But the Prophet Sallallahu when he came, he actually turned everything around, um, brought, brought uh, from the darkness, brought into the light of Islam. And as we know, that's the reason why we're Muslims today, because the Prophet and the Sahaba, they carried Islam to all four corners of the world and changed the world that we see around us. So inshallah, without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Brother Brahman. First and foremost, we start in the name of Allah Rahman Rahim. All praise to Allah Rabbul Alameen. May the peace and blessings be upon Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, upon his family, his companions, and upon all those who follow the path of Haq, the path of truth, until the day of judgment. Secondly, I do dua, inshallah, that you're able to hear me clearly. Um, and if you're able just to confirm that in terms of uh, the volume that I have, it's, it's, it's audible and clear. Uh, yes, fine, yeah, alhamdulillah, that's good. So this subject is about the the impending New World Order. Now, this is such a broad subject. It has many aspects to it. Last time I was um, humbly invited to discuss a very similar subject, we started to first define what we mean by a world order. Before we even talk about a New World Order, what do we mean by a world order? In working terms, a world order is nothing more than simply the global system that is defined upon certain concepts, upon certain thoughts, upon a certain system that is imposed willing, willingly or by force upon the global society, upon nation states, by leading nation states. And these leading nation states today, obviously, we're looking to the likes particularly of America, Britain, with the influences of China and Russia to varying degrees. But the system which each one is supporting as part of this world order is the secular capitalist system. This is the global world order, and it is imposed politically, it is imposed economically, it is imposed militarily. Importantly, which is the aspect of the subject which I want to discuss today, it is imposed intellectually because the intent of this circle is now once we define what the world order is that it is based upon these principles of secular capitalism enforced not just by these nation states 
in particular the leading state, which is America, but also imposed by the tools which they have at their disposal, the likes of the United Nations, the World Bank, and the IMF. But it's also talking in reference to the new world order, which we envision as Muslims to have. And this vision that we have is a vision not born out of a dream. This vision that we have of new world order is neither born out of regret of what we could have, what we should have. This vision is born out of a dream, which is a promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and which is an intent, a statement of intent and responsibility, which falls squarely upon the shoulders of the Muslims with regards to establishing this new world order. And implicitly and explicitly, that is referring to a world order that is established upon Islam. Now, my discussion today actually isn't about what the new world order looks like, but trying to compare it to the existing world order. I want to discuss one specific aspect, which is the intellectual challenge that is associated with having the new world order. So the way I want to start is with the following two statements. Firstly is a quote from Ibn Khaldun, very famous um, scholar, writer in Islamic history, Ibn Khaldun, in his book Al-Muqaddimah. He wrote the following, and I quote, throughout history, many nations have suffered a physical defeat, but that has never marked the end of a nation. But when a nation has become the victim of a psychological defeat, then that marks the end of a nation. And secondly, this is an ayah in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, Ba'abismillahirrahmanirrahim, in Surah Al-Isra, verse 81, And say that the truth has come and the falsehood has perished. Verily, the falsehood was destined to perish. These two statements, one from Ibn Khaldun about the impact of a psychological defeat upon a nation, and the eye in the Quran, the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, with regards to the, the prevailing of the truth and the banishment of all that is false. These two statements are very relevant throughout the thread of this conversation, this discussion. Throughout the history of mankind, nations have risen and for sure that they have fallen too. And every nation has faced challenges and situations to the point it marks the end potential of their existence. And the Muslim Ummah has been no exception to these challenges and to this threat. But when a nation is challenged upon its thoughts, systems, and suitability to solve social, societal problems, or political problems, or economic problems, then the struggle of that nation, that struggle of that people is even greater, even if there is no external threat or military force. Please keep that in mind, that when a nation is challenged upon its thoughts, its system and the suitability for its system and way of life to solve society's problems, then the struggle of existence for the society, for that system, for that people, for that nation is greater even if there is no external threat or military force. This was the reality at the time of Rasulullah when he presented Islam to the Meccan society and this presentation of Islam shook and challenged the very foundations of that society.
And this resulted in two things. Firstly, the corruption, decadence, and equality that existed in that society was exposed. And secondly, there was a strong backlash from the society, in particular, those who were the guardians of that society against Rasulullah and against the believers. And after a period of 1200 years of the Islamic civilization and its unfortunate subsequent decline, to be, to be replaced by the dominance of capitalism in all, its, in all its guises that has shaped the world order under the current leadership of the likes of the US and the UK and the tools which we mentioned earlier on, like the IMF and the World Bank, we really have gone full circle back to 1200 years ago, back to the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Firstly, similar to the time of Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and the Quraysh, the corruption, decadence, and inequality of the current world order is very much exposed to everyone and anyone. If we just look at some statistics, these statistics are very much available, publicly available. Poverty, for example, nearly 50% of the world's population, which is in excess of 3 billion people, live on less than $2.50 a day. And more than 1.3 billion live in extreme poverty, less than $1.25 a day. 1 billion children worldwide are living in poverty. And this is all according to UNICEF, who go on to say 22,000 children die each day due to poverty. That is the current world order under secular capitalism. Let's just look at wealth inequality. Despite high growth in emerging countries, global inequality has increased. And since 1980, the top 1% have captured twice as much global income as the bottom 50% globally. And interestingly, during this current financial hardship that everyone is facing under COVID-19, the wealth of billionaires has increased between 20 to 40% while everyone is struggling to keep their job. This is wealth inequality. We just need to look at the environment. And I'll quote, this is from The Guardian newspaper in 2014, under the heading, Capitalism versus the Environment. Can greed ever be green? That was the title of the article. Can greed ever be green? Quote, the fact that the now dominant capitalist economic system is unsustainable is not in doubt. It has contributed to the breaching of several ecological boundaries in relation to climate change, biodiversity loss, and nutrient enrichment. At the same time, as damaging the natural systems that sustain it, capitalism is also leading to increasing inequality, in turn creating social tensions that make it it's still more exposed." End of quote. This is the exposure that we have today with regards to the corruption, the decadence, and the exploitative nature of capitalism. Statistics are rife about all of these elements that we've introduced as just snippets with regards to the very nature of capitalism treats mankind, treats society globally. It is unsustainable. It is a world order that is unethical, that is immoral, 
that's based upon corruption, based upon exploitation, where power is right, might is right. That is how it works. And where the focus and the objective is a material gain at the expense of everything else that could be considered. The second element going full circle, again similar to the example of Rasulullah is the natural, inevitable, and only replacement for the current system. Now we're here not talking on the level of a nation, which was the time of the Quraysh, but here we're talking about the world order, that the only natural, inevitable replacement of the world order is Islam. Islam will become the basis of the new world order. This is a promise, as Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, And then there will be the Khilafah, the Islamic State, the Islamic system, which will be established upon the method of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and then he remains silent. But through also this period where we're seeing the, the, the exposure of the decadence of capitalism and the potential rise of Islam, throughout this period, the backlash against the Muslims, both in the West and in the Muslim world, is evident. Again, you see this going full circle. As the desire and aspirations to live by Islam grows among Muslims, this backlash becomes stronger, and the head of this sustained backlash is the intellectual occupation where amongst Muslims, confidence about this promise, confidence about the establishment of the new world order upon Islam has been surrendered to a defeatist, pragmatic, compromising mentality and a skewed perception of reality which reinforces this defeatist attitude. This intellectual occupation or subjugation under secular thought, under secular pressure, is reflected in views and arguments such as the Ummah is not ready for the return of Islam. For example, the return of the Khilafah is Allah's promise, therefore we should focus purely upon correcting ourselves and not get involved in these affairs. For example, the New World Order or the Khilafah or the Islamic system this is a long-term project. We rather need to focus on immediate issues that we are confronted with as Muslims, wherever we reside, as communities or as countries. For example, the opposition to establishing Islam, the opposition to establishing this new world order is too great that we should not focus upon it right now. These are some of the arguments which are presented and not presented by non-Muslims. This is sentiments which exist amongst the body of the Muslims, even though the concept or the perception or the view with regards to this new world order is something which should be a, 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 a firm belief, a firm perspective that every Muslim should have. And therefore what I want to do, I want to summarily tackle these four arguments, no doubt there are more, but I want to just to focus on these four and put a perspective with regards how we should view the emergence of the new world order in context of these arguments which are presented, which establish a defeated, pragmatic and compromising mentality 
all of these traits which are in complete contradiction to the trait a Muslim and a believer and a mu'min and uh, should have in terms of the way they view the emergence of Islam as the alternative and establishing it at the basis of the new world order. Firstly, obviously, to put a framework. And with regards to this framework, I want to make the following key points. Firstly, the decline of the current world order is evident. It was not triggered by COVID-19. It has not been accelerated by COVID-19. COVID-19 has just exposed what was already existent with regards to the decline and the very nature, the brutal nature of secular capitalism. But its persistence to exist with all the issues and all the statistics that mar it, that shame it completely, that humiliate it, its ability to persist is because it has the ability to adapt. Because the basis of secular capitalism is compromise. So it has the ability to adapt. But more important than that, in the eyes of humanity, there is no perceived view of an alternative. So it is able to carry on one, because of its ability to adapt, but more importantly, there is a perceived lack of an alternative. And as we mentioned, the only alternative to secular capitalism, the only alternative to the current world order is an Islamic new world order, or a new world order that is established upon Islam. And that is our responsibility as Muslims to advocate, to present, and call for this alternative. Secondly, as part of this framework, we should also recognize as Muslims that the return of Islam, and we're here talking about Islam, we're not here talking about parts of Islam. Prayer is a part of Islam. Zakah is a part of Islam. Hajj is a part of Islam. But what we are talking about is not the parts of Islam. We're here talking about the return of Islam as Islam, the complete Islam. Islam established upon its aqidah, upon its iman, comprehensively as a way of life from the example of Rasulullah which will change the political landscape forever. The return of Islam, it is inevitable. And this is a matter of iman for the Muslims. This is a matter of iman. No Muslim can or should have doubt in this matter whatsoever. Thirdly, as part of this framework, the return of Islam is actually visible on the horizon. This is a matter of reality that is sensed and not necessarily sensed by Muslims. It is very much sensed because those who have and those who keep a very close a touch, feel of the pulse on the Muslims are those who are working day and night to prevent the return of Islam. These are the governments all around the world both in the West and in the Muslim world. They are very close to the pulse of the Muslims and they sense that Islam is visible on the horizon. And this matter is very much sensed and it is a reality today. The fourth point as part of this framework is that the desire for its return and to live under it is evident amongst the Muslims and it is not a matter that is disputed. Muslims around the world at any point in time, uh, in any given situation, engage in a conversation, ask the question, do you want to live by Islam? The answer overwhelmingly 
in the quality, in our quality as an ummah, is yes. So the desire for its return and to live under it, this aspiration very much exists amongst the body of the Muslims in our quality as an ummah. And I always make this point in our quality as an ummah in order to clarify that clearly there will be elements today as there will be tomorrow who will not be keen to see Islam return as a system, as a, a life, even amongst them. Um, the next aspect, the next point within this framework that I want to cover is that the work of the return of Islam and establishing it as a new world order, it is an obligation. It is a far, it is a wajib, for which is neglect a Muslim who understands this as an obligation will be sinful in not working towards it. And working towards it can only be done upon the example of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, upon his method alone and no one and nothing else. And the final uh, part, or the final piece of the puzzle with regards to this framework, in terms of an introduction to refuting these arguments, this intellectual occupation, subjugation of the mind, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has shrouded the Muslims are shrouded the believers with important credo concepts such as the wakul, rizq, sabr, ajr, and the promises to the believers with regards to his nasr, his support. And all of these should establish the confidence, the optimism, and the hope within the Muslims and the body of the ummah that the return of Islam is inevitable and the new world order upon Islam is within our grasp. With all of these points of the framework in mind, let's counter these arguments and barriers in a generic manner. And I trust, inshallah, that in the upcoming Q&A, we can collectively discuss this in further detail. Okay. So the first point I want to make is with regards to the Ummah. The Ummah in her quality as an Ummah is ready for Islam. She aspires to want to live under it and be able to regain her dignity from it and counter all her, her problems and humiliations she faces in absence of Islam. The most recent being the public normalization with the illegal Zionist entity. That has just added insight to the current state of the affairs of the Muslims. The readiness of the Ummah is well known from the various polls by think tanks and indeed, in the very actions undertaken by governments, both in the West and East, to curtail her desire and impose difficulty upon the Ummah to prevent her, to restrict her, building this aspiration as a momentum towards this change, towards this world. Our Ummah is ready for Islam, but when you discuss with her about solving her issues in a practical way, i.e. removing corruption, having political accountability, stopping bribery, having her basic needs protected, ensuring that her rights are protected and her land and interests are protected. The Ummah all agrees. She wants all of these in place. And all of these matters are matters which fall within the domain of Islam under the responsibility of the ruler of the Muslims who is implementing the Sharia as an authority to a state. So the Ummah is ready for Islam 
also because she despises the rulers over her today. Even if she does not move against them, and even if she undertakes actions that are not consistent with Islam, her love for Islam and her hatred of the rulers is blatant and obvious. She is ready because the ones that will practically move and secure Islam will be the people of power. These people are called the people of Nusra, under the guidance of the Islamic political party that works to establish the state and the new world order upon Islam, uh, um, sorry, under Islam, upon the method of Rasulullah And for those who want to keep arguing that the Ummah is not ready, if she truly is not ready, then it is our job to make her ready. More than this, the governments around the world are preparing for the return of Islam. How can we be so naive about this answer? Secondly, with regards to the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that the, world order, the new world order will come, for sure, this is very much a matter of yaqeen, a matter of certainty, a matter of iman, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never fails to deliver on his promise. But keep also this in mind. Our Rizr will come without fail. It is a promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whether we pass our exams and get married, it is already written in the Lauh Mahfur, in the protected decree. It is already written. But none of us sit and wait for these matters. Even though it is a promise, even though it is written, none of us wait for these matters. Rather, we apply for jobs, we prepare for exams, and we actively look for spouses who are keen to get married to. And if this is the case for marriage, for work, for exams, then by greater reasoning, it must be the case with regards to the work to establish this new world order under Islam upon the method of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. More than this, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam knew the promise of Allah subhanahu wa taala better than anyone. But he also, uh, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, worked to establish the deen, even against all the opposition that he faced, as did the Sahaba may Allah be pleased with them. With regards to this argument, point number three, that Khilafah is a long-term project. No, Khilafah is not a long-term project. It is supposed to be a three-day project. Since the Muslims should not be in absence of having a bay'ah, having a pledge of allegiance to a Khalifa for more than three days. We have made it a long-term project by neglecting the work for it and allowing defeatism, pragmatism, and being distracted by other work that becomes our focus. We are delaying the work for it, and as a result, allowing the current world order to continue to suffocate the Muslims and the entire world. As I mentioned, the reason why the current world order still has legs is not simply because it has the ability to adapt like a virus, but also because there is no perceived alternative. And there's no perceived alternative because the Islamic system does not exist. And the Islamic system doesn't exist because as a Ummah, as Muslims, we have become distracted by other work 
from this false pretext that Khilafah is a long-term project, we'll get there one day. No, it's not a long-term project. This new world order is an immediate project that must be embraced by every single Muslim to bring it into reality as soon as possible. And the final point that was put in context of this intellectual subjugation of the Muslims in preparation for this new world order is that the opposition is too great. We're not ready to counter and compete against this opposition. Really for this, I only have three points. Point number one, the opposition against Islam has always been great. This is and will forever remain a clash of civilizations. Two ideas, inostensibly, cannot be aligned, cannot integrate. They are like oil and water, they cannot mix. That is the nature of Iman and Kufr. That's the nature of Islam and Tahut. That's the nature of Islam and the current world order. So the opposition to the rise of Islam will always be great as it was as the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Let's just acknowledge and recognize that. Number two, this struggle was a struggle that was the sunnah of the prophets. And this struggle is for sure and was sure the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and therefore it equally applies upon us today. That we have to deal with the opposition that exists. Not naively, not through emotions, but with a clear understanding of the intellectual and political dynamics which are required to be followed upon the prophetic method to change the situation today from what it was at the time of Rasulullah which was Darul Kufr or the existing world order under the Quraysh to a new world order under Islam. Existing situation today of the world order under secular capitalism upon a new world order upon Islam with a deep understanding intellectually politically what is required to make this change upon the prophetic method. And actually, as a final point to this, my third point, is that the opposition is not going to get any less. It's going to get greater. And as the opposition gets greater, it's actually just instill confidence for the Muslims. That if the opposition is getting greater and the hardship is increasing, it means, subhanAllah, that the victory of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is getting closer. And it should give us confidence also, because the bully doesn't pick upon the one who is weak. The bully picks upon the one who has the potential to compete against him. The difficulty that is increasing upon the Ummah is because the West and her agents around the world realize, realize that the Muslims have the potential and are showing the potential to bring back an alternative, to bring back or to establish a new world order which is upon Islam. So this hardship, this difficulty, this opposition is an opposition and difficulty we recognize, we acknowledge, but it should give us and instill confidence within us that we must be trekking in the right direction and getting closer to the objective of establishing the new world order under Islam. In conclusion, what should be clear, I hope, from this aspect of discussion 
is that for sure the current world order is feeding pressure and it's on the edge and at some point it will collapse and this is an internal combustion secular capitalism doesn't need an external stimulus in order for it to collapse it does a good job by itself but it also has the ability to adapt and this ability to adapt has allowed it to continue for as long as it has today but at some point it will collapse but what will facilitate this is when the world and the Muslims, and particularly the Muslims, are able to show there is an alternative. There actually is a new world order that is better, not just for Muslims, but is better for humanity. And to be able to go in that direction, acknowledging and recognizing the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that this new world order will be established, to go in this direction, we have to overcome the intellectual occupation, the intellectual subjugation of our minds so we can move away from defeatism, pragmatism, compromise, and rather we have the hope, the confidence, and the optimism that the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will come soon for all of us. Uh, inshallah, we'll open up the floor to uh, the brothers and sisters. If you have any questions or comments, inshallah, if you could put them down in the chat, and uh, inshallah, we'll ask Zuhan, um any questions you may have. Um, brother, uh, brother Jason Smith has a question. Uh, do people still see socialism or a compromised socialist capitalist ideology as an alternative solution to the world? Uh, in summary, the answer is no. And the reason for that is those who were supposed to be the bastions, the guardians of socialism, have discarded it completely. Uh, whether this is the Chinese, whether this is the, whether this is Russia, even North Korea, which you could say is the last vestige of any form of social communism or socialism or communism in itself, it's completely a world away. So the reality of that is that socialism really doesn't have any legs, doesn't have any intellectual basis, but neither has a track record which people can refer to to be an alternative to capitalism whatsoever. So I think in this regard, we can discard socialism completely. And remember, keep in mind, socialism is one from an ideological perspective, and socialism also can exist from a social angle. Now, socialism within a social context can be exhibited anywhere. But here we're talking about establishing a complete new framework of a system, which means from an ideological perspective, Socialism has no value, has no weight at all in today's political conversations. Inshallah, brothers and sisters, if you have any questions or comments, if you'd like to uh, put them in the chat and uh, we'll ask Burhan, inshallah. Um, Burhan, you mentioned during the circle um, the fact that uh, capitalism and secularism is actually um, beginning to wane and uh, beginning to self implode. Um, so it's evident that uh, this capitalism is in, I mean, it started off by infecting the entire world um, by the spread of the colonialist powers uh, by force. Um, and we know the system's not fit for its purpose. We've seen very recently the, uh, uh, the people who have been put in charge of taking care of the affairs of society, i.e. the leaders of the world, uh, they're truly the criminals of the world, as we saw in the Panama Papers, the WikiLeaks, uh, we've been seeing month after month, year after year, 
um, uh, different governments uh, uh, being there shown uh, in the public eye in terms of their dealings, in terms of uh, oppressing uh, their societies, stealing the wealth of the people. Um, but this idea of the world order, um, uh, you know, so sometimes it sounds quite nefarious in a way uh, because people would uh, look at the world order in terms of what they see around them today, what they recognize today. Uh, you mentioned the time of the Prophet Sallallahu but that was maybe uh, 1400 years ago. So in terms of practicalities, people don't really see uh, the Islamic world order in a practical sense. So how, how should we view this idea of the a world order? Because all that we've seen over the last few hundred years is uh, uh, subjugation, uh, destruction, uh, pillaging, criminality. Yeah, but I think in a way, Jazakallah, I think, Alhamdulillah, for your comment, straight question. Um, explicitly in what you've said, you've in a way for me articulated a very good way to start looking at the new world order, which is simply everything other than all the mess and all the subjugation, all the corruption, all the exploitation, all the wealth inequality, all the poverty, homelessness. I mean, the statistics which are available on the, on the internet, I mean, are a complete indictment the current world order in every sense. So when we say this is the bread and butter that people are consuming every single day, but at the same time we know that people are looking for an alternative, for sure. There was once a conversation at least 10 to 20 years ago talking about a third way where they realized the, the current system wasn't able to satisfy and secure society in all of its elements, ethically, morally, socially, spiritually, politically, economically, there was corruption as there is corruption, which is endemic. So people constantly are looking for an alternative. Everyone is highlighting problems with regards to the system that is in place, whether it's with regards to politicians and corruption, whether it's regards to the environment and its exploitation by multinational companies, whether it's talking about politics and how big corporates have interest and are able to redirect politics to garner their interests both domestically and abroad, where they talk about the economics, how clearly there is huge wealth disparity within the country and between countries, and everyone faces a problem. And we're not here purely talking from a political and economic point of view. From a social perspective, everyone reads the statistics about rape, about murders, about theft, about burglary, about aggravated violence, about um, and gun violence, and the fact children are no longer secure instead of going into schools, about discrimination. Black Lives Matter came at a time when America had its very first black president. What a contradiction, but that shows the extent of the inability of the West under the New World Order and the Muslim world blindly following the West under this New World Order is not able to solve these problems fundamentally and comprehensively. So therefore people clearly are looking for alternatives. I think the issue is not so much about what does Islam offer and how do we present Islam? It's first to acknowledge that people categorically feel the problem of the current world order and are looking for an alternative. The conversation we need to have is how do we present and articulate that alternative in its absence? What I mean in its absence, which you all recognize, in its absence as a state practically existing that could practically demonstrate 
what it means to have Islam applied systematically upon a society, whether the people residing there are a combination of Muslims and non-Muslims, because within Islam, the concept of living within the state is that you are citizen, you're not considered to be British or non-British, you're just a citizen, you have rights which, you are, have a, which should be secured by the state. So I think once we start to articulate this, this helps to change the focus of conversation for the people then to say, well, there is an alternative, but this alternative in their mind is still something which is abstract, philosophical, sounds good, but I need to see it, which goes to the whole conversation. We need to remove this intellectual baggage that we have amongst the Muslims, which is a defeatist uh, negative attitude with regards to the return or establishing this new world order. It is very much within our capability because there's no greater supporter than who? Than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as Allah says in the Quran, and it was upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to aid, to support the believers. So if we have this mentality and we overcome all these defeatist arguments which have been passed to us year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation, which puts even in our mind, forget the minds of non-Muslims, in our minds, can we really have an Islamic alternative that will stand by itself and be an alternative to the current world system and be an alternative world system? The answer to all of these issues is categorically yes. So I think it's all about one, articulating and bringing in the minds of people a perceived alternative, number one. And number two, more importantly, practically having that alternative in place in order to showcase it in a very practical way. Which comes to my final point, which is, it is very perceptible because when we talk about Islam, and I tell you as a story, I used to travel to one country uh, to meet a number of um, students to discuss about Islamic issues. And, and um, some of them who I met were from Pakistan. They were master students, PhD students uh, visiting, and I sat in the room, and one of them immediately said, said, Burhan, um, Khilafah is something which is not possible today in Pakistan. The people are not ready. So even if the word is common, and the knowledge about it is common, the people are not ready. So I said to him, well, let's take the word Islam out. Let's take the word Khilaf out. Let's just talk about the reality of what I want to establish and what we want to establish as Muslims. So we started to talk about a judiciary that was not corrupt. There was no bribery. Uh, the policemen did the job and they should do the job. Politicians were accountable and removable. There was no political families who had influence over the entire political system and had vested interest to ensure legislation was passed for their benefit. Everyone had access to uh, clean, free water. Everyone, everyone had access to electricity 24 hours of the day, every day of the week, without any interruption. I said, look, do people want this in Pakistan? And he said, everybody wants this. I said, well, that is Islam. That is what Islam is practically applied in a society. And you're telling me people don't want Islam? And then he realized our, what's the word? Our handicap is we seem to have an issue with regards to just words, which is Khilafah, which is Islam, which is political Islam. We just need to get over the handover of these terms and talk about the reality of what this system will bring and how this will then shape the new world order and the counter 
with existing data. Just after that, right? Um, inshallah, we have a question from uh, Brother Rizwan Abu Maryam. I see that the Ummah has lost confidence in Islam, not in the Ibadah. The Ummah would never question if their Salah was incorrect. They would never go to the Mandir to see how the Hindus pray, etc. However, they have lost confidence that Islam can solve the problems of the world economics, politics, etc. How do we restore that confidence? Jazakallah khair. And I, I think the easiest answer to that is um, they don't go to a mandir uh, to know how to pray is because they already have the knowledge with regards on how to pray. When somebody loses confidence, in part they lose confidence because they don't have the knowledge on how to tackle an issue. So as one brother gave a very nice analogy, he said when there's a gap in the salah, in the rows, what do you do? You pull the person from behind to fill the gap. But when there's a gap in our economic system, how do you fill it? And you don't look behind you to fill the gap from Quran and Sunnah. You naturally go to, to the West to find an answer to that question. Same with our politics. Um, so to rebuild this confidence, I think we need to go through that same process. We need to remove this intellectual occupation, subjugation, which has festered in the minds of the Muslims for decades, which is what? That the Islamic aqidah is purely a spiritual aqidah, and it's not. It is, is a, it is a spiritual and it is a political aqidah connected to life. Uh, we don't have a separation between deen and dunya. For us, deen governs the dunya. That is the very nature of the aqidah, that's the very nature of the shahada, that is the very nature of what the Prophet who called for. Number two, we have to start to reconnect Muslims to this broad knowledge of what Islam is pertaining to these issues related to society. So they can see Islam has a political structure. They see Islam does have ruling principles. They do understand Islam has an economic shape and a model which is beyond simply riba is haram uh, and uh, we don't do gambling and, and that's about it. No, they understand the economic system has more to it and we're able to articulate it. So we got to start giving the knowledge, and this knowledge is critically important because in absence of that knowledge, Muslims as human beings, still we need to solve our problems. If we're not looking to Islam to solve our problems, we still have to solve our problems, we'll go somewhere else. So by being able to demonstrate, by giving knowledge, what is the shape of Islam comprehensively, and an aspect of that is its political structure, its economic structure, its social structure, its punishment structure, etc., etc., and this will bring the confidence back to the Muslims that now they have a criteria to judge and they have a vision of what it would look like. Because today we don't have that vision because we don't know what it looks like. So when truly there is a gap in the economic system, we look behind, we cannot fill that gap because we don't have that criteria to measure it. So inshallah, once we build that knowledge, that framework, that will change the perspective. And thirdly, I think for the brothers and sisters, to truly understand the comprehensive nature of Islam. And remember, we're not here talking about a political Islam or an economic Islam. There is no pre or there is nothing a prefix or suffix when it comes to Islam. Islam is just Islam. It's a comprehensive whole. What we need to do, for those who understand that very clearly and recognize the need to connect Islam to all matters, we should be at the forefront of articulating one an expose exposure of the current failings 
of the current system around us and then show how would Islam be an alternative. This will start to plug that gap that the Muslims have today. We have a question from Brother Frederick Jonathan. Is capitalism salvageable? There are some who feel that we can save capitalism if we can raise taxes, close tax havens and reduce inequality. Can we reform it? I mean, the answer is you can um, I'm just trying to think of an analogy just, just to make just to make a bit more sense of it. Um, all these all these attempts to reform capitalism are very much within the ability of capitalism, not because they emanate within the capitalist theological basis. No, sorry, not theological. It, 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 it doesn't emanate from its political basis or from its credo basis. Rather, it's a mere fact that the very nature of capitalism is built upon secularism. The second is built upon the concept of compromise. Capitalism will, can take from anywhere, any place, um, thoughts, rules, systems, in order to survive. And if we look to Britain as an example, the NHS has nothing to do with capitalism. NHS was an, an initiative born out of socialism but adopted and embraced in order to mitigate and try to manage the society. So in this regard, for sure, capitalism can go through many iterations in terms of taking from different bits and pieces with regards to taxing, with regards to removing tax havens, with regards to injecting cash, with regards to what this is a furloughing and giving 80% of salary um, protection for those who are impacted by loss of a job or through furloughs. All of these things can be done in order to give capitalism life support, but not to salvage, because to salvage capitalism, the only way to do that is for capitalism to change its very fundamental principles upon which is established. And the moment you do that, you no longer have capitalism, you have something else. Uh, next question is from uh, Brother Jason Smith. Um, he says, I just want to divert a little into the coronavirus worldwide issue. Uh, in the UK, the government is proposing a partial lockdowns in order to combat the virus and keep the economy running. This isn't clearly working. What would the Islamic solution be here? So there's a number of points here. Um, the Islamic principle when it comes to pandemics is built upon a simple philosophy, which is uh, those who are healthy are secured and protected, and those who are ill are separated and they're managed. And this becomes a very fundamental policy of the state as a principle. In terms of how it's managed, it's managed obviously through a process of quarantining those who are infected. Is managed through policies which are adopted by the state to ensure it, and these, these, none of these, by the way, require a lockdown. And none of these requires establishing tier one, tier two, tier three uh, kind of approach. And we find what we notice when it comes to the example of Britain, constantly there's a um, updated version on how to tackle the coronavirus based upon the number of cases which, which uh, appear on the horizon. 
is a combination of state policy and also a combination or responsibility of the individual to recognize their responsibility when it comes to dealing with the situation if they perceive themselves or they suspect themselves to be ill. So one is a principle, a policy, which is those who are healthy carry on with their normal, normal life and those who have the concern or are infected, they're separated completely and they're treated accordingly. And this treatment isn't based upon age, isn't based upon health conditions, it's treatment that should be provided to the best that can be delivered to every single individual without differentiating between the type of person that is a. And secondly, also around that becomes a, a broader policy that's adopted by the state about separating and quarantining people. And I don't have the details of that, to be honest. But the, third, the other element, which is particularly important, which is something which we don't, which we've observed, uh, particularly in the West, is the frequent violations of any regulation that is introduced by, by governments around the world. I mean, the very nature of society is built upon the principle of me, myself, and I. As long as I can enjoy myself, as long as I'm not the one who's infected, and I'm, I'm bored, I just want to get out and about, I want to do things that way, I want to do things. When these things start to happen, and you have these parties that go on at night time in violation of, of quarantining, um, recently I heard, actually today I read um, in the news that the police um, raided a wedding party where there was 100 guests invited and they were dancing and having the celebrations. All these things are things which are all in the scope of the individual and having that moral responsibility to take the right decisions as well. Francisco, if you have any questions or comments, if you'd like to put them down in the chat section, inshallah, and Brother Burhan will uh, try to answer them for you, inshallah. Um, I think Brother Jason Smith has another question. Uh, there are Muslim groups out there that get involved in intellectual academic debates regarding topics like feminism and democracy. I feel as though these groups are too theoretical. Do you think my analysis is correct? If yes, what would you do to improve these groups? You know, just after that, I'm basic philosophy, basic philosophy should be is all about you know anyone who's working for Islam. You know, we always look and try to support them as best as we can. Um, because anyone who does work for the Deen, inshallah, they will be rewarded. But as you mentioned, the aim is to make this work, which is practical, which has a very clear objective. So I think the first conversation needs to be having clarity of objective. What really is the objective behind this group and engage in these debates? If it's simply a question of established versus the crooked line of feminism or democracy or LGBT or anything else, if that's purely the realm of the conversation, potentially it becomes academic. Um, but again, it goes back to what is the objective that this group has as to why they're taking this approach. Um, because that's just one action, or that's just one set of actions that's being initiated. If this is purely the scope of their work, this is their bandwidth, that's all that they do, then yes, there is that risk of being very academic, uh, very detached from the practical issues that need to be addressed on the level of society. But again, this conversation is more about understanding what the objective is of such an organization. Um, the way to safeguard it is to go back to the principle. And the, the, go back to the principle is all about what are the obligations. Carrying the da'wah is an obligation, for sure. No one does. Enjoying the good for being the evil is an obligation. Again, for sure, nobody does that. 
But all of these actions of carrying the da'wah and enjoying the dinner forbidden evil must be towards obligations which Islam has obliged for the Muslims to establish. And the king or the pinnacle of that obligation of those obligations um, sits towards re-establishing and resuming the Islamic way of life. Not simply because it's an obligation, not simply because it's a vital issue. And what I mean by a vital issue is a matter of life and death. Because the Muslims should not have more than two leaders at any point in time. And likewise, the Muslims should not be living in absence of a bayah at any point in time. But more than this, that all the other vital obligations that Islam has placed upon the Muslims are absent and cannot be protected because of the absence of Islamic system being present amongst us. So I think the way we have to reshape um, discussions and conversations of any organization must be geared towards having that as the pinnacle target. And once that becomes the pinnacle target, then we start to identify the most obvious thing, what are the steps to achieve that target according to the method that is defined for us by Islam. And that is a conversation we constantly need to have in order to be able to move the conversation in the right direction and in a practical way to achieve the outcome, which is one, the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and number two, which is the establishment of Islam upon the method of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And such direction is the only way to salvage, not just the situation of the Muslims, but to, to as a salvage for the entire humanity as well. Muhammad, you mentioned uh, during your talk uh, about the time of the Prophet Sallallahu and uh, we found that uh, the Prophet Sallallahu was um, uh, very forthcoming with Islam. Um, he didn't hide any aspect of it. Uh, he invited his uh, family, invited the uh, leaders who were uh, you know, Abu Jahal, etc., who were part of his family, the chieftains, um, and he was. Um, uh, very upfront in terms of uh, with the truth. He never uh, minced his words. Uh, he saw Salam was always concise with his words. But uh, I find that today uh, we are very uh, shy about discussing various topics in Islam. Um, the issue of uh, a world order, as an example, uh, the issue of Khilafah, uh, the issues pertaining to jihad, for example. Um, you know, it seems as though people are on the back foot in terms of uh, wanting to discuss Islam. But surely, uh, when Allah SWT describes Islam as the um, biggest tree in the forest, uh, not just the biggest, but the best tree in, amongst all the trees in the forest, and the tree that grows the best fruits, um, those that nourish and those that uh, provide, um, surely we should be carrying Islam in the same way, uh, in the sense that uh, we should be actually uh, not on our back foot, but on the front foot, challenging uh, all the isms, uh, whether it be capitalism, socialism, uh, whether it be this disgusting um, uh, racism that's spreading uh, throughout India and throughout America. Um, how should we behave uh, as Muslims? Uh, because I, I remember very distinctly, um, uh, Brother Ahmed Didat, uh, Allah, may Allah be pleased with him, I remember him when he visited America some years ago, and uh, the brothers had invited him all the way from South Africa. And it's the only time I've really seen him upset. And uh, he was—he said to the Muslims that you don't have a backbone. 
uh, you know, uh, you're educated people, but you don't have a backbone, because they'd advertise the talk about the Prophet ﷺ in such a way that they uh, put him on the back foot as insignificant in Nauzabillah. Um, so how do we actually behave in terms of actually carrying Islam to the world? Um, because surely Islam is not just about being nice and inviting people over for a cup of tea um, uh, or building masajid. Surely it's more than that. Um, you know, Jazakallah I think in a way, again, uh, Alhamdulillah, you know, your comments, your question within itself contains more or less all the answers. If I had to summarize it, if you're asking me, I would say the following principles. Uh, a Muslim never compromises upon any aspect of the deen, but he seeks to articulate it in a very clear manner, which doesn't lead him to a difficult situation unnecessarily. Now, people confuse this and use the term hikmah, be wise, wisdom. And wisdom also entails, you know, choose your battles wisely. And if sometimes Muslims then say, you know, it's not the right time to have this conversation. It's not wise to introduce this conversation. It's not wise to talk about it in this way. The word hekama and wisdom actually doesn't mean this at all, which is be, be beautiful with your words, be kind with your words. The word hekama, the word wisdom actually means the one, the, the, the words which have the greatest effect. And the greatest effect can be the soft word, Likewise, the greatest effect could be the strong word. It's all about understanding the reality of the conversation that's taking place, or understanding the situation of the person that you're dealing with, or the state or the, the, the environment that you're in, and that will help influence and determine what you consider to be the best way to have a conversation. But the principal philosophy is, we don't hide from the conversation. We never compromise upon the concept, but we try to articulate it in an intelligent way. And as long as we have that as our, as our rock, as our backbone in how we engage, then what guides us would become our objective, understanding when to have this conversation. So we never compromise upon these ideas, the ones that you've mentioned. We discuss them as they need to be discussed, but we discuss them with an appreciation that they need to be articulated in a manner that reflects the audience that we are talking to, so there is no misunderstanding. And, and, and inadvertent misunderstanding, if that makes sense. So we don't miss our words when it comes to the issue of jihad, for sure. But at the same time, we discuss it in a manner relevant to the audience that we're talking to. I have been stopped um, many, many times at immigration, also coming back into the UK, also going to Canada, also going to the United States, also going to Australia, and a few other places, and have a, a two to three hour conversation with the um, law enforcement um, and, and people there, and immigration, asking about my views, very, very black and white questions with regards to what do you think of Donald Trump? What do you think of the Zionist state? What do you think of political Islam? Um, and, and again, it goes back to the point. You don't compromise with regards to what needs to be said, but you need to articulate it in a manner that is that brings clarity to the subject without you inadvertently incriminating yourself when you don't need to, if that makes sense. So what that means is the Muslim will always be loud and proud, which is the other point. I always make this as a very, very important premise for all of us. Um, there are communities, distinct communities in and around us who are very loud 
and very proud of what they believe in. Even though we as Muslims would consider this to be completely immoral and ethical and something which Islam completely um, negates. Now these people have no shame in being loud and proud in what they believe in. And at a talk once, um, at least two decades ago, in the University in Birmingham, um, these people and a few other different communities attended my talk um, with a view to stop the talk. And the way we started the conversation was to say, it's amazing. Somebody who is who believes in um, being homosexual is allowed to be loud and proud. Somebody who is a Jew is entitled to be loud and proud in what they believe in, and they're not expected to compromise. And both of these two communities were in the audience with the view of stopping the talk. I said, if you recognize that for yourselves, then why should Muslims consider themselves as any different and also should be treated any differently? Myself as a Muslim, I should be very proud of what I believe in, and I should never be in a position to have to compromise. But if you can't, why should I? And even if you did, I could not. And all of them left the talk and allowed the talk to go ahead. Now, I'm not saying that's a, a solution to the problem, but I do completely recognize the point that Ahmadibat is making and accept all that he has done to, for, for the Ummah while he was alive. But this point that we shouldn't become defeatist, we shouldn't become pragmatic, we shouldn't bury our heads in the sand. If we have something to say that is referent, that is relevant, and pertinent to the subject that needs to be discussed, we should discuss it, we don't compromise upon it, but we just need to be mindful in how we articulate it. And that's the only thing I put down as a caveat to the idea that we should be proud and discuss it openly. We should be for sure, but this caveat, we just need to be able to articulate it in a manner that makes the concept very, very clear and that we don't end up inadvertently incriminating ourselves for no reason. Uh, Brother Costa has a question. The whole thought of a world order as an alternative to the current has been demonized so much that they have almost got a monopoly on the world. Would it not be very difficult in such a climate to establish the Islamic world order? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, on the contrary. If ever there was a time these past 15, 20 years has been the perfect time to re-establish an alternative world order anywhere in the world. And the only ones who have the right, honestly, to do it are the Muslims. Because we are the only ones that actually have a practical, meaningful world order that will benefit the entire humanity and take people out of the darkness into the light. It doesn't matter that this term is demonized. The Muslims, the Sahaba, Rasulullah was demonized. They didn't stop because of that happening. They were boycotted socially, politically, economically. And keep in mind something very, very important, an analogy that we can draw with the time of the Prophet and us today. We have things that the Prophet never had. The Prophet never had an economy. He never had a military. He never had a people resource. He never had access to natural resource. He had none of these things. He had no wealth in his possession. He had no land he had authority over. He had to establish all of these things 
in order to establish the greatest civilization on the face of this earth. So he started with nothing. Okay. And yet he was, and through the process of being demonized, being boycotted, being persecuted, throughout all that process, he had nothing. He established the, he established the nucleus of the state in Medina that led to the establishment of the greatest civilization this history that humanity has ever seen. 1400 years on, we have absolutely everything. We've got economies, we've got resources, we've got armies, we've got lands, we've got people. Our ummah is huge. Our geography is amazing. We have amazing resources beneath our feet. We have everything. What we're lacking is that thought that the Prophet came with. And that thought is Islam being viewed comprehensively. And once we have that connection, then subhanAllah, all we need to do is connect it to the resources that we already have. Automatically, our new world order becomes meaningful and relevant. So we should never be uh, pessimistic. We should rather be very optimistic about what is achieving. Um, Brother Jason Smith has another comment, short question. Uh, secular Muslim governments and their scholars have done everything they can to discredit, discredit the Hizb. I find this might have affected the people's confidence in the Hizb when they ask questions like, where are the experts, scholars, specialists of the Hizb? How do we answer such people? Do we show and list these scholars? You know, I'd be a practical example. Um, I went to uh, Sri Lanka for a number of meetings with the Muslim community based there. And one of the brothers there, he asked very much this question. He said, give me the name of all your scholars. So I asked him the question, why do you need to, why do you need to know the name of all my scholars? Because I need to validate that they truly are scholars and they have ijazah. They have the legitimacy uh, to be scholars in their own right. I said, okay, I can give you a name of all the scholars. And if you reject them, does that really mean anything? Because I can ask you for your scholars and I may not accept your scholars. Isn't what really matters at the end of the day is what are the evidences that have been presented by each side. And instead of looking at personalities, we're looking at names. But each one of us needs to look at what is the evidence and what is the hukum that has been discussed and what is the certainty and the strength of the evidence that has been used for the argumentation. And I am happy to give you all of the culture, all of the literature, as well I'm happy personally to come and even meet with your scholars to discuss this issue. And what I can't discuss, what I can't answer, I will get answers for you. So at the end of the day, the strength doesn't lie in a personality, it doesn't lie in a scholar, because who scholar is acceptable nowadays? There's huge debates, even within a community in Birmingham or a community in London, who is and who's not a scholar, who is respectable and who's not respectable. So when it becomes, once, once it becomes a question of he, she, they, I, this focus shifts away from the real conversation, which is the evidences, which is the concept, which is the hukum, Discuss talking about personalities and scholars. And this is what we don't want the discussion to be about. The discussion should always be about the evidences, and that's what it should be. And just uh, and so that's really the focus. So when people talk about scholars, 
I always insist on talking about evidences and talking about rulings and here is the evidence and here is the ruling and please take it to the people that you consider to be of authority to evaluate, to judge and if they agree, alhamdulillah, we have something in common but if they disagree, then let's have that conversation with the people that are of knowledge to reconcile this. I think that's the best approach to take. And if you don't mind, again, I just want to give another uh, practical example. And it's a funny example. Um, it's a funny example, but it's a true one as well. When I was out in Sri Lanka, I went to a very famous Islamic university to meet one of the professors. Um, the professor spoke fluent Arabic, as he should, um, and fluent Tamil. Um, I spoke fluent English, which means we could not communicate with each other at all. So one of the brothers who was with me, and he was an Ustaz, um, studying with the Hizb, um, but Sri Lankan. So he was mediating the conversation. So I would say something in English, he would then translate it into Arabic and Tamil, talk to the professor, uh, and the professor was the teacher of this Ustaz, and then the professor himself would say something in Tamil or in Arabic, and then the brother would then translate it back to me. The conversation went on for about an hour, um, hour and a half, approximately. Keep in mind, he's a professor in an Islamic university, and I'm just Burhan wearing jeans and sweating like a pig because it's very humid in Sri Lanka. At the end of the conversation, um, he took, uh, the professor took uh, this, our brother, to a corner, and they had a conversation. And after five minutes, they were laughing a lot, really loud, and laughing really, really loudly. And they gave, they gave me salam, um, the professor gave me salam, and then with the brother, we, we left the university. So naturally, I asked the question, and the brother's name is, uh, his name is Qari um, Ismail, I said, Ismail, I don't understand. At the end, you know, the, the professor took you into a corner, you had a conversation, and then you started to laugh quite loudly. What was all that about? Uh, he said, well, no, no, um, um, the professor was asking about you. He was asking about your credentials. Um, so I said to him that you haven't studied officially in any madrasa. You haven't got any jaza from any scholar. You haven't attended any Islamic university. You haven't studied formally Islam anywhere. Um, and, and the professor replied, um, that is remarkable because the level of knowledge that you had was extremely high. Level, scholarly level knowledge. And, and, the, and that's why I said, then why were you laughing? He said, I was la we were laughing because I said to the professor, if you think he's clever, he's the thickest out of all of us. <laughs> You really then need to meet the scholars of the his. <laughs> He's not even a scholar. And that's why I decided to laugh. So my point is the focus really to be back on the evidences and not about the personality of the name of the scholar. Not easy to do, but that is what we should insist upon. And hopefully what that does, it refocuses the conversation away from personality. Because remember, one thing always to keep in mind, when conversations move towards scholars and personalities, people naturally start to become defensive of the people they respect and they, they admire. And that becomes very difficult because what happens, the subject of the conversation moves away from the concept, from the, from the evidence for the concept, it moves towards the defense 
or the attack of our personality, which is something we should always avoid. A Muslim is a Muslim. We love our brothers, whoever they are, wherever they are, even if they are unjust towards us, as long as they're part of this ummah, we love them. We love them truly. Even if they're harsh upon us, we love them, they're part of our ummah. We just need to keep the focus upon the concept and the evidence of the blessings we can. Um, we're coming here to the end of our session today, so inshallah we'll take one last question. Um, uh, why do the majority of Muslims fail to understand the crippling secular system and still latch onto it and ignore the work for the re-establishment of a new world order based on Islam? Um, to be honest, I don't think it's a question of they lack knowledge or understanding of it. It's what is the willingness to sacrifice to change it? Which is why during my talk, when we talked about what is the framework by which we should refute these defeatist arguments that exist in the minds of the Muslims, that we are not strong enough, the opposition is too big, and we're not ready, um, we can't compete. All these arguments, all these defeated arguments, they center around some very core ideas. And one of the, one of the elements that we talked about is that we're not very close to these creedal concepts. If we were close to these freedom concepts, such as Riza, such as Ajib, such as Tawakku, such as Sabah, all these freedom that make the connection between Iman and action permanent. At the moment, the connection between Iman and action is severed. It's severed because what protects it, what covers it, are these freedom concepts. That, for me, is the reality of Muslims, not the Muslims as a whole. That's the reality of the Muslims we are talking about today. We are not covered by these by this freedom Islamic concept, rather we are covered by the secular idea of me, myself and I. I need to do as much as I can. I am proud to be a Muslim, but you know something, there's benefit I need to secure. And that we have all these knowledge which is coming to us, not Islamic knowledge, but perceived Islamic knowledge. Rather, we need to work on the premise of necessity, that Islam is about maslaha, it's about rahma. Rahma is about maqasid, maqasid is all about objective, and the shiri objective is to bring ease to you. So whatever brings ease to you is halal for you. All these concepts, all these alien Islamic ideas are being injected into the ummah and this creates what I would say is the Jekyll and Hyde personality that we have today. Where Muslims love Islam, but they're not prepared to sacrifice for it. They recognize things are wrong, but they're not prepared to change it because they believe they have far more to lose if they work to change for the sake of the deen. What we need to do is to reset their dial by re-establishing their understanding of Islam upon the right basis, as best as we can, inshallah. Jazakallah uh, to the brothers and sisters um, who participated today, inshallah, and those of you that have listened in. Um, and Jazakallah to Burhan for uh, your efforts in terms of conveying this idea of the new world order to us. Um, and Jazakallah for the examples and also the joke at the end as well. Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends to also visit IslamPodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, Sira, and much more. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Podcasts on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran tafsir, and sira are available at islampodcasts.com as well as on iTunes. 
Rate, review, and comment, and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend about IslamPodcast.com.